0: The Christian Atheist is also available on YouTube, and you will find other great content, including the literature I frequently refer to, on our Simple Gifts podcast. If you find our content helpful, consider supporting us through PayPal at RomansChapter5 at Comcast.net. Welcome to The Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode number 22, On Ethics, Part 5. In Christian Atheist podcast episode 17, YouTube Christian Atheist video 13, I said, We are accountable to respond in faith to the light given us, and none of us are without light. There are two paradigmatic responses to God's light, that of Cain and that of Abel. Listening through the years to various Christian versus atheist debates, Almost invariably, the Christian will appeal to grounding an objective ethics in God. The argument takes the valid deductive form known as modus tollens. Premise 1. If God does not exist, then objective ethics does not exist. Premise 2. Objective ethics does exist. Conclusion. Therefore, God exists. Despite its deductive validity... I make no claim concerning soundness here. This argument has almost no value in persuading atheists to believe in God. As a group, it has been my experience that atheists are among the most morally concerned human beings on the planet. And truly, most of their objections to God, faith and structured religion, are moral objections. The best evidence against God being the author of morality, many atheists will assert, is the existence of Christians and Christianity. As I have asserted before, there is a godlike arrogation of moral certainty in these thoughts, but they are most definitely not irrational. We human beings judge others as though we are God, as though we have a comprehensive knowledge and understanding of both the subjective and objective conditions of human action. It is a fault to which both Christians and non-Christians are susceptible. It was this sort of judgment that Jesus warned against in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Matthew 7.1 The reason that this argument will never convince an atheist is that they know themselves as ethical. All human beings do. This is the evidence of ontology we discussed in the previous episode of The Christian Atheist. They believe God does not exist, yet they find ethics within themselves. Ethical judgment is not accidental, but essential to our humanity. What need, then, for an external grounding for ethics? It is inherently human. We see here the grounding of human experience as a lived ontology. We are ethical beings. To deny the existence of ethics, to explain it away, as much ethical theory seeks to do, consciously or unconsciously, is not to deny God, but to deny the evidence of our own most intimate being. Whether or not God exists, that is, however we explain ethics at the metaphysical level, ethics, the ought, does. Likewise for arguments concerning the existence of the universe, its fine-tuning, its complexity, That these things are the case are simple facts, and how we explain those facts, account for them at the level of metaphysics, does not change the facts themselves. So, in terms of ethics, we can adopt two basic metaphysical attitudes to the evidence of ontology. One, there is an objective right and wrong, an order of being, and we ought to conform ourselves to it. Two, there is not an objective right and wrong. Being is what we make of it, and ethics is entirely a human construct. These options correspond to our choices on the notion of human freedom to which we have devoted so much time in previous episodes of The Christian Atheist. The ontological evidence of freedom can be accepted at the metaphysical level or denied, explained away. As in this case... My own position is clear. I will side with the ontological evidence as true, though it is not something I can prove. I must take these things on faith, as with all metaphysical explanations. I believe, though, as Kant said, that taking them on faith is compatible with as strong a notion of human reason as can be imagined. Explaining human freedom and ethics away at the metaphysical level, however, is not a new trick. In very many ways the existence of an objective ethics has been challenged since the time of the greeks it was the sophist protagoras that famously declared man is the measure of all things and against the sophists ethical relativism all the force of the intellects of socrates plato and aristotle were directed in defense of an objective system of values if anything though the battle has been with us throughout our history there has never been a time in which the forces arrayed against objective values have been more powerful or pervasive than our present state of affairs. Today's sophists, too, are enamored of the human intellect and its products. When you hear the term social construct today, you should call to mind the sophists of Plato's world. There are two manifestations of this intellectual arrogance the constructive, and the critical. As an example of the former, we have Plato's Republic, a highly articulated philosophical construction of an ideal society meant to solve all of humanity's ills. At the opposite extreme, we have the critical arrogance of the modern left, whose agenda is the deconstruction of existing structure, with no positive vision of what to replace it with. In both cases, the intellect runs wild in a fancy of moral condemnation of existing structures, thus adopting the role of supreme judge of the world, almost invariably from a consequentialist's standpoint, unconstrained by any evidence in opposition to their own moral rectitude. As the leftist approach is critical, all positive structural elements become their targets. Everything existing or traditional is an element of oppression that must be destroyed in order to usher in the utopia to come. All destructive change, therefore, is good change. This unremitting faith in the consequentialist moral efficacy of change is the residue of Hegel's dialectic that has permeated Western thought. What is must give way to the better by way of the dialectical processes of history. This explains why any sort of conservatism must be utterly overthrown. Any notion of traditional society must be destroyed. Why history must be rewritten. All that matters is bringing about the change necessary to usher in what is coming. This Hegelian faith in the forward march of history, this historicism, hinges upon the negative judgment of existing structures and the praxis that undermines them, it depends, that is, on the rational capacity to judge. As rational beings possessed of the capacity to critically evaluate, to judge, we discover in the very logic of that capacity the indication of a judging ideal. This ideal judge would possess the unlimited and complete judgment of which our capacity is a mere shadow. Part of the logic of this notion of the ideal is the correlate that there are objective judgments, true judgments, and if this is the case, there are real constraints on our own faculty of judgment. We can judge correctly or incorrectly. We can make moral and immoral choices. This too seems to be a part of what logic dictates at the ontological level of ethical awareness, and thus what we can either accept or deny at the metaphysical level, the level of freedom, of faith. Metaphysically, then, we can either accept the existence of an objective system of reality constraining our judgment, or we can reject it. Relativism, of all sorts, is the denial that objective constraints exist. So much of contemporary academic thought has sided with the denial of the evidence of the ontological, that we now have a new orthodoxy regarding it. We should remember, though, that denying the evidence of ontology is itself a function of rational judgment, that unique capacity of human beings to stand outside the natural order of things, even when that natural order includes the self-conscious experience of transcendence as imago dei. It is perhaps worth saying, though, that in denying the evidence of ontology, we put the very function upon which we deny it, human judgment, in doubt. When we judge that human judgment is inherently untrustworthy, by what right can we turn about and assert its right to deny its own trustworthiness? Why should we accept the judgments of the judge known to be inherently unable to properly judge? We human beings bear the mark and spark of our Creator. As Jesus quoted the psalmist in John 10, Is it not written in your law? I have said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, then what about the one whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world? How then can you accuse me of blasphemy, for stating that I am the Son of God? This is the paradigm of the atheist dilemma. No one is without light, but what the light reveals must be believed or rejected and then acted upon. There are two reactions to God's light. One, we accept our nature as limited beings and assume that we ought to conform ourselves to the right, the true, and the real. Or, two, we assume that man is the measure of all things that we are the authors and final arbiters of truth, ethics, and reality. The first is the response of Abel, and the latter, that of Cain. This battle has raged throughout human history, and is not likely to end any time soon. We must be careful not to identify any one group of people, even Christians and atheists, into one of these categories rather than the other. It is perfectly possible for a Christian to claim moral certitude of judgment against their fellow man, to claim their own position as that of God instead of acknowledging their finitude and ignorance. Cain, after all, acknowledged God, but trusted in his own actions to justify himself. And James tells us that even the demons believe. The real issue, as Hebrews 11 makes clear, is in whom one trusts. I would even argue that an atheist who understands his lack of knowledge, his failure to be what he ought, who acknowledges his frailty and need, is more properly on the way to the truth than one who self-righteously stands believing before God, the very position of the great deceiver himself. Of course, it is almost never the case that we are all Cain or Abel in our response to God's light. Rather, each of us combines the two in our thought and practice. I would argue, though, that these two approaches explain much in our world, both in the Church and outside it. When we exclude any real constraints on human intellect or claims to knowledge, as is the current trend in academia and critical theory, for instance by explaining away ethics in the forms of relativism or consequentialism, we exalt human pride. Adopting God's position, usually while denying his existence. This is Hegel's absolute idealism reigning supreme in Western academic thought, for Hegel's position is God's, a position unavailable to the finite and limited beings we are. Adopting God's position, while denying him, displays the unavoidable tension into which atheism falls. Claiming to know God's thoughts and ways, in spite of remaining finite, ignorant, and fallible creatures, is the arrogance of the Church. Isaiah 55.9 As rational beings, our foundational beliefs determine the course of our thoughts and actions. That is, to any postulate we hold as true, logic will dictate what follows from it. We have repeatedly said in The Christian Atheist that what one truly believes will be most accurately reflected in our actions. We are logical creatures, even if we are not always logical in thought or practice. We can take two fundamental faith positions on our place in the grand scheme of being. 1. As able, we can accept that despite the presence of pain and suffering, reality is good, right, Christians must say that reality is God, the great I am, and that God is goodness itself, and that we ought to ally ourselves with good, right, God, with the objective and moral order. Two, as Cain, we position ourselves as judge of reality, finding it lacking, unjust, immoral, and we substitute our judgment in place of that which we find. As the judge of being, our human will is supreme. We become God, even while denying Him. We should understand that this second option is only possible because of our rational nature. We can be critical of reality, set ourselves up as its judge, because we are rational. Because, I would argue we possess a reflection, a spark of divinity. It is because we are like God that we can judge God. Likewise, it is because we find these capacities in us that we can explain God away and set ourselves in His place. Here we have the explanation of the failure to convince atheists by arguing from ethics to God's existence. If we are God already... If we have rejected the ontological evidence of our own existence, what need do we have of a transcendent being to explain it? What, then, follows logically from these two positions? Abel, in faith, aligns himself to the existing order, does what reality, or God, requires of him. Cain, exercising faith in his own rational nature, morally rejects the given structure remakes reality in his own image, ignoring the constraints reality presents to him. The actions of each, then, play out within the existing framework. Abel finds blessing and prosperity as his beliefs align with the empirical reality which constrains him, while Cain, having condemned and rejected reality, finds only more reason for bitterness and condemnation in the empirical consequences that follow inevitably from his lack of alignment with the real. The logic is inescapable. Resentment escalates, and reason feels ever more justified in its moral condemnation of the existing order. Such injustice, such poor structure, must end, whatever the cost. And, as Abel is the closest representative and ideal of that corrupt and unfair system, homicidal rage takes its course. Cain hates God, reality, but kills his brother. This story, of course, is infinitely richer than this thumbnail permits. But the logic of the positions of Cain and Abel well represent the ongoing battle of mankind to come to grips with our world. Whether theist or atheist, it is my hope, indeed my prayer, that someone somewhere might leave the path of Cain and rediscover that of Abel through this and every edition of the Christian Atheist. I am far, by the way, from asserting that the above is an argument for God's existence. I suppose that one might be able to formulate such an argument from it, but that is not my intention. It is rather a signpost from the peculiarity of human rationality. Human consciousness seems to me to be a structure whose depths we have not even begun to understand. From a metaphysical perspective, we can explain the mystery, shut it down, or we can explore it, keeping our options open. Exploring it, while having faith that rationality is adequate at some level to do so, seems to me the most productive path forward. If we are to trust reason, however, there seems to me no more profound basis than the imago dei. The projection of divine reason in us. If, however, human reason is the product of blind evolutionary chance, a mere tool to promote the survival of the fittest in the struggle for existence, what reason have we to trust our capacity to discover truth? I will end this week with a quote from St. Vincent de Paul that illustrates the importance of acknowledging truth and its inherent constraints on our rational arrogation. The reason why God is so great a lover of humility is because he is the great lover of truth. Now humility is nothing but truth, while pride is nothing but lying. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it, too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview and be a Christian.